0: Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. Today we'll be talking about failure. Probably the best place to start is to talk about what we think failure is almost define failure um, or even identify what different types of failure there are because there's a big distinction between like not spelling a word correctly um, which can be characterized as failure in some sense and l- losing your job or not being happy with your entire life
1: yeah I mean I think we need to talk about what the criteria are for failure I Think things like misspelling word or mistakes. And I don't think they go into categories of failure. I mean, mistakes are so low there. <laughs> it's <laughs> hard to see how those are in the in a macro sense failures. And they might feel like failure because of the culture's expectations about performance, but I don't think that they actually are. I think today we're talking about failure as a sort of systemic or chronic condition, you know, or even possibly a monumental moment that shapes a life but doesn't consume it as an orientation towards all of the events in one's life. I think probably the culture defines failure as a lack of success. And so if the culture defines success as economic, then a series of decisions that lead one away from economic success would be understood culturally as failure, you know? I think that there are also people who might define failure as um, the inability to, to comply with, you know, a required action or, a, you know, a set series of behaviors. Although I guess really at the bottom of that is, like, what, how, to what do we attribute failure? If failure is a personal thing, right, then it's your judgment that's the failure, And if failure is created, the conditions for failure are created by sociological structures, poverty or segregation or violence or whatever, then I think the way that we understand it is totally different because then it's not necessarily the individual's actions that are creating failure. It's entirely about, or predominantly, about the circumstances into which they live. Well, let's
0: get into that because I think a lot of people, like... Who are perceived as failures or who perceive themselves as failures often blame themselves or others for their failure and i think there's not a lot of criticism of like the structures that are creating like situations or structures that identify something as a failure that doesn't necessarily have to be so people are blaming themselves for being different for example and that can be perceived as a as a failure so, not adhering to certain standards of material success in the economic framework that we exist in now um, is a failure. And a lot of people will blame themselves for that when it's not necessarily something that they personally could have changed, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, as a culture, Americans are really terrible at assessing <laughs> where personal blame and responsibility should be and where cultural structures create the conditions for certain kinds of decision making i mean i think we're just bad at that and i think we're bad at that because we perpetuate victim blaming about like everything from rape culture to divorce you know to um unemployment you know i mean really that sort of Sociological and rhetorical shift sort of started with Nixon and really expanded under Reagan. And I think that now we have a gross lack of shared responsibility for the culture, which leads to overemphasizing the personal for other people and underemphasizing it for ourselves. And then complete inability to understand how social structures create conditions for certain kinds of choice making. So, for example, I was talking to somebody last night about a failed marriage. A failed marriage. And they were saying about how the marriage failed because they were pressured into it and neither partner wanted to get married, but their parents were putting tremendous pressure on them. That's exactly, like, that wasn't a failure. That was set up for failure. That was never going to be a success to begin with. You know, because there were structures that were pushing those two people together faster than they could make a decision not to be together if that was the right thing for them. So, you know, I think I think we're bad at assessing our own personal responsibility and much too quick to, to want other people to take personal responsibility for themselves in ways that don't really make sense for their historical milieu.
0: I agree. I mean, and I think it goes a lot further than that even. Even if there's no, like, direct pressure applied, there's some kind of, like general positivity about especially about marriage (laughs) (laughs) yeah about marriage about romance relationships and in a lot of ways about careers too if we like take into account the american dream there's like a certain type of optimism about things working out and playing out and you not understanding that those situations don't always apply to you
1: Yeah, I mean, I also think we're just really bad at reframing failure. I mean, we can't see how failure creates different kinds of opportunities and frees us from constraints that were not necessarily healthy for us. You know, whether it was the forced marriage or the, you know, the wrong major or whatever it is. I think we're not very good at thinking through what kinds of opportunities are opened up through failure. I mean, there's a bunch of popular, I guess, self-help. There's aphorisms and things like, you know, if God closes a door, he opens a window, and those sort of, like, folk aphorisms. But they really, I think, get to a sense of reframing our understanding of agency when unfortunate things happen that we didn't necessarily account for. I just think that there's room to delight in failure in ways that Americans really can't and other cultures clearly do Iceland for example has no linear narrative cultural narrative about economic success so you can go from being a banker to an angler to a DJ to a teacher and there's no sense that you're building Mm -hmm. a career and that there's a linear sense at which at these junctures of your life you make these series Mm -hmm. of social commitments and so they, the people they report being much, much happier because the narrative of success and consequently the narrative of failure are totally different. Yeah. There's utility in that, I think.
0: Yeah, I think what I've noticed here is that there's a culture of perfection. And so well, when people fail, they're like really unwilling to discuss it. Mm. In fact, you know, I see people like very happy about their marriages online and they're very vocal about it. They're very vocal about, They're at the birth of their new baby. But no one really gets online and talks about uh, their postpartum depression. No one really gets online and talks about when they're getting divorced. Oh, yeah. I mean, not to the same degree. So there's like a privacy about failure and a publicness success that kind of perpetuates. People don't talk about their failures. And it becomes a thing where like there's an opportunity for intimacy that's entirely missed. Yes. And there's like... An opportunity to like absorb failure and feel like comfortable with it that's also missed because yes. you feel alone. There's like alienation in your failure, and you don't understand how many other people have gone through this collective experience. But because we have this like culture of perfection that- and, shame. <laughs> and, shame,
1: yeah. and shame and shame, yeah, and shame and a culture of massive, massive shaming, yeah,
0: then you can't like have resources or like feel free to talk about things that you feel that you failed at which is an opportunity you know to connect with other people or like heal
1: that's super smart and the other thing i think is that um i think failure often functions in opposition to dominant power and that's one of the reasons why it's it's privately felt and not publicly expressed whether it's postpartum depression or whether it's miscarriage or abortion or unemployment or impotence or cancer or i mean like or aging i mean i feel like there are all of these facets for grown up life where the reason that those failures are kept to the self is because to utter them is to oppose dominant modes of power. And so I also see failure as subversive. I think there's a lot of power in failure, but we live in a culture that oddly demands perfection and then never delivers it, (laughs) you know. From the most mundane interactions, um, we do not deliver in the US on basically anything. Quality control is low, job satisfaction is low, wages are garbage. I mean, in every variable, in every index, right, where we might see how perfection might be positive, you see the opposite. Demands for perfection and low low scores on everything else, from productivity to happiness. So I think the culture of perfection really is self-defeating. And I think that that's why people have midlife crises, mm-hmm. you know, it's because they've been told for years this cultural narrative that if you just get your college degree or if you just get married or if you just have kids, like, those things will completely eat you and you'll feel, you know, so fantastic and whole. And then people reach 40 or 45 or 50, and they realize that they were pressured into a bunch of decisions that they didn't necessarily want. And while they may not regret those decisions, they weren't authentic. Mm -hmm. in a way that they might have wished them to be and so I think that there's a lot of agency in failing and then transforming that failure into momentum for different kinds of decisions
0: I think it's a systematic thing, The, the culture of perfection is a really like outwardly influenced the types of perfection that are valued are things that are visible to other people and mm-hmm. success is largely about like That's things right. that are visible. Acquisition. It's yeah. right, acquisition. But <laughs> so, I mean I think spelling a word wrong can be like a type of failure because there there's that like type of perfection where you don't even make those little mistakes. Especially not where other people can see it, hear it or read it. And I think we are so caught up in even those like small perfections. And those types of things are reinforced.
1: I mean, that's like the case with my students. I mean, they have no, they are so completely racked with anxiety and shame and guilt about their grades. Oh, I wish we could just do with grades at the college level. It is not helping anybody with anything. All it's doing is turning them into these emotional messes and they, and it just compounds. Every test, every class—it just compounds, and it starts with the standardized testing very young. But by the time they're college age, I mean they are incapable of navigating the emotional ups and downs of being an adult, even with the support of the family, even if they have all, even if they're white, and even if they're financially secure, and they have an intact, even if they have all the variables that are predictors of so-called, you know, economic success, they do not have the emotional tools to weather. Moments in their life that do not conform to a perfection narrative. And I think that that leads to a lot of really intense feelings from those students, conflicting feelings, where they want to be honest with somebody and they want to confess and talk through those feelings, but they feel like they can't. And so they become alienated, just like you were describing. It becomes impossible for them to get close to feelings of intimacy, to share those failures with other people, even though it may be able to create some collectivity. And they're wracked with fear, and they feel they've they lost control. And it just spirals where they feel like they can never get control of themselves or their emotions mm-hmm. back. And that just seems so tragic. And even, like,
0: minor setbacks can derail. Oh, for sure.
1: And honor an to... <laughs> An honor of 40-page paper. I'm like, write two pages now. Write two pages tomorrow. Take a day off. Write two pages. I mean... It's really not that a huge, tremendous amount of yeah. labor.
0: And also the the amount that people think that... I mean, there's a lot of weight placed on that when I was writing my thesis, but, you know, now that I've graduated, completed my thesis, I mean, it was a useful exercise for me, but whether I did well on the thesis or not is irrelevant to my greater life. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. For the most part. Uh-huh. I mean, I imagine some cases in which you could, like... Nope. Do really well on your thesis, and <laughs> that's not how it goes.
1: No, yeah. you generally not.
0: not. But but you but that's the thing. Like people place this enormous weight on themselves. Like maybe in just one class, like they place an enormous weight on getting an A in that class when they don't understand that it's
1: how little that actually mm-hmm. matters. I mean, but the other flip flip side of that is sort of the Reagan era meme invention of the notion of the welfare queen right where the political culture blames the individual for things that are neither choices nor within their control and so they are deemed social failures so i mean blackness has always been that way in american culture blackness itself is equated to failure and whiteness is equated with success because whiteness is understood as property and blackness is understood as the absence of property or as propertylessness And so you have a political culture that that puts crazy amounts, that asserts crazy amounts of agency on people that is systemically robbing them of social power. And that is just as problematic as the student who, you know, has a funhouse mirror sense of what kind of power that their education is exerting over their future. I mean, both are equally troubling, I think.
0: I mean, that's so dangerous because it's so easy to internalize feelings of shame about uh, looking different or being in a different class. And that, like, can be crippling. There's, like, so many mental health problems now. And, I mean, they happen at any end of the spectrum. But imagine feeling like a failure just because of the way you were born or your social class. I mean that kind of stuff don't is have so to women. <laughs> like Yeah, in,
1: the entire culture is, is polluted with shame for women. And I'm not saying that it's not worse for different kinds of people. I'm not really trying to do the blame Olympics or, you know, rank oppression that way, but I I think you'd be hard pressed um, to think about parts of American culture that are not steeped in shame. About things that people really cannot control about themselves and about where they were born into the hierarchy of power in the culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, whether it's class or able bodiedness or race or ethnicity or status or whatever else. I mean, all. Yeah, of gender. That. I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can be
0: born or like have a certain ideology or like way of feeling that you can then internalize as a failure. Just because it's, there's no conversation about it in the mainstream. Or it's like the conversation is directly opposed yeah. to who you perceive yourself to be and your personal feelings. And even like things outside of your feelings, like your current economic situation.
1: When I think about what folks with a critical perspective might understand about failure. I want them to think about where they hear righteousness. Because whenever I hear righteousness as a tone, like as a rhetorical tone, that should be a red flag (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that there is a bunch of shaming that's happening or is about to happen. You know, that's around issues of success or failure. So I really... I really dislike righteousness. I think it's it's um, it's a tool that distances us from the responsibilities that we should take on as individuals, and it makes it much harder to see how those structures play out. And yeah, there's always... I mean, you see it right now in this presidential cycle, which is just so disgusting. It's certainly on the right, I mean, it's just all loathing and righteousness and finger-pointing and... Pointing to difference and um, demonization. That's just really ugly. It's ugly. Mm -hmm. Ugly public culture. And also that is about patrolling the boundaries of acceptable narratives about success and failure. Mm -hmm. You know, and especially the immigration debate. Absolutely. It is all about it.
0: Those narratives are also particularly dangerous because there is like... There are huge consequences to people when they feel like they aren't capable. You know, there's a well-documented stereotype threat with girls in school when they just think that they're bad at math and that's their, like, personal ability. Because that's, like, what they've been told. And people say that both directly and indirectly. So they just internalize that and then don't perform well as a result. And I mean, that's um, the best documented case. But I mean, it happens in other situations. I mean, I don't start something if I think I'm going to fail at it a lot of times. Like things that I would be fine at if I just tried. And that's just like a personal internalization of some kind of failure. But I mean, on a broad scale, there's huge numbers of people who are at a disadvantage because they feel like they failed in some way or that they can't do something because they don't adhere to a particular narrative so it's like it self-perpetuates
1: but it's it's because it's located in the body is because our narratives of success and failure are located in the body right it's because we think that race determines X outcome intrinsically, or gender does, or geography, or whatever, birth, right? I mean, the, the sheer number of birth metaphors in the culture is an indicator that Americans have a super work view, but that's very much about caste. There are other cultures that don't, right? I mean, you were talking about the achievement gap, which is, like, super useful. Because if you look at Japan or China... They have high achievement there because their notions of success and failure are different because they think that success is in continuing to try despite failure, right? They do, but also those
0: cultures have really high rates of suicide, which yeah. indicates that that type of achievement and placing like a culture of perfection in like that particular sense um, <laughs> is also really damaging. Yes. So it's like any kind of outward sign of success, especially that which involves perfection. And they have really high standards in their schools for achievement. It ends up being really damaging. I
1: could not agree more. I mean, I I think you and I both agree that there is a need to change the narrative about failure so that we can reassess it as a space of distancing oneself from those sociological structures of power that are super damaging about race and gender and class and to reinvent new new possibilities for understanding our relationship with others and our relationships with work and our relationship with intimacy and our relationship with family. and I mean, I think that, I don't know, a lot of those could use a big dose of failure. I know I, I talk to students all the time who are worried because their families don't support them at all. And they have no models for what it means to create safe emotional distance between themselves and people who are their blood relatives. That seems like a totally Mm -hmm. useful place. Absolutely. To think through what it means to have a family fail. Because when families fail, often some folks find liberation in that. You know, they find themselves in the breakdown of old patterns of violence and control and mistrust and, you know, and a bunch of other really problematic behaviors. So to have this perfectionist culture when everybody's so dysfunctional just seems like a gross disservice to me. But I think there are, I mean, the narrative is changing,
0: um, although it's on a pretty small scale now. I think it has become clear that, perfectionism is a really bad model for education. Mm. So trying to, you know, shaming for wrong answers and shaming for failures in schools. Now, I've fallen out of favor for the most part. And there's, like, uh, the introduction of a growth mindset, which is uh, all about absorbing failures. Like, in fact, if you follow a growth mindset, it's like, If you're not failing, you're not learning. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a pretty important lesson to learn. And that's especially important because kids are being exposed to that, which is the perfect time to learn that there's no way to be perfect and no one is. Um, But also it's happening around more social issues too, I think. There's the one in three Mm -hmm. campaign for abortion to let people know, like, this is something that happens to a lot of women and we're going to talk about it. Um, so you don't have to feel like the fact that you had an abortion makes you a bad person or makes you a failure it's like a communal experience has happened to a lot of women and there's like a place for that so to me that's part of like changing the narrative again it's like very isolated and there are like huge spaces of perceived failure like family that haven't even been that's a that's a very difficult subject but
1: well that's because we re- need to rethink the family I think the thing that drives though what what little shifting there has been about the narrative about success and failure has been the massive economic decline you know during the Bush administration during and after the Bush administration because when the economy shrinks so massively after huge amounts of political corruption people become cynical in old ways of thinking and they're forced to reevaluate ways of living that are unsustainable and myths are busted and exposed and you know people have to reinvent new ways of participating in public life certainly economically so diy culture i think is part of that for especially for white women, um, I think I think um, like the small house movement for sustainability gurus and those that's also a white people thing, but I think most of that momentum is white because those are the people who have actually the less the least amount to lose, and that but that's where the a lot of the dynamism is. But for families of color, black families in particular. Ideas about family are different anyway because the history of slavery has influenced the the makeup of what black families have been since emancipation. And for Latino-Latina families, it's totally different because it's influenced by religion in a different way. And so I think the place where you find the growth mindset is mostly bourgeois white folks that have the class attainment, you know, and the leisure time to be able to reframe those narratives and I don't know that that's totally surprising um, because that's where intellectual movements generally happen if they're not revolutionaries and and the bourgeois white folks but you know I think that a larger shift in consciousness is much less likely in the short term around notions of success and failure and I think to shift a culture in a huge way it's almost got to be cataclysmic That's why most of the productive reassessments of success and failure, and you and I have talked about this before, happens in dystopian, futurist imaginaries, whether that's fiction or science fiction or what.
0: I know I've read the argument that failure a lot of times can be like a space for liberation. Um, And also it's a uh, space that could be useful, like failures lead so, people asking questions. And I mean, failure is useful in a lot of other ways. Like, I know in scientific studies, there's like a massive underpublishing of failed studies, like negative results. Oh, yeah,
1: totally. No sets. Yeah. And that's a tragedy. I mean, that is a total tragedy. If but there's you don't a find significant yeah, it's, difference.
0: It's useful. Uh-huh. That's useful information uh-huh. that is being excluded. Because Agreed. it didn't pan out the way, you know,
1: like you're. The research <laughs> you conceived that it might. Yeah. That it might. Mm-hmm. No, null sets are super important. If you can confirm that there is no difference between X and Y, that's as useful as finding difference. And the fact that those null sets don't get published means that all our entire base, especially sociological data, has a confirmation bias against, you know? I just think that when we think about failure, that's where we find alternatives to conventional understandings of life. And I think one of the reasons you see such rates of depression and anxiety, you know, in the culture right now is because people are looking for new ways to redefine themselves and their relationship, especially to work and family, and they're dissatisfied that the culture is not accommodating new ways of reorienting the self towards the collective. And that's why you're seeing both the high high rates of you know of suicide and depression and anxiety and these sorts of things is because people have a failure of imagination and they have no social outlets to really reimagine conventional life well, it's just terrible
0: that's why it's so important to like be to like reject the culture of perfection and be honest about things that you feel like you failed at or things that you're ashamed of i mean those are the opportunities to connect with other people and like be visible
1: yeah i was talking to to somebody the other day about you know what it was like being on the tenure track and and i was talking about my trajectory as a first generation college student and and my college experience, my grad school experience, and I was trying to explain how I was habituated to such a massive degree of labor. Because probably from the time that I was 15 till about two months ago, I worked almost every single weekend of the year. And I'm having to now sort of reassess my time now that I'm tenured and. Um, certainly now that I have some off campus duty assignments for my sabbatical where I'm sort of have the space to reimagine my relationship to my profession and you know the reason that sabbaticals are important for academics is because we grind so hard you know your favorite band doesn't put out an album every year that's good they need time to recalibrate you know and then produce more Mm -hmm. and everybody should have that you know it shouldn't just be academics but the fact is, is that we have shorter vacations and fewer vacations. Americans don't take their vacation days, which seems criminal to me, um, because they because of that culture of perfection, and it's killing us. It's increasing our obesity and our rates of heart disease and stroke. God knows, I had one at 31 years old, um, which I don't. I, which stress was a contributing factor, but it was you know not solely due to that. And I, I just think that people are just working at a frenetic pace and they don't have any respite from the narrative of success. And they're just running on the hamster wheel, running themselves to death. So I think that there's a lot of regret in that. Mm-hmm. Like there's a ton of regret in that. And in fact, if you look at nurses or end-of-life care, end care providers, hospice workers, they say that the number one thing that people talk about as they die are their regrets about how much they worked. So that's crazy. Yeah, that's believable,
0: that's but crazy. not a lot of people talk about finding satisfaction outside of that. Normal that's right narrative. Like I don't know. If, I mean, I think there are a couple of popular um, articles published by some academics about like the culture of work and how like damaging it was, and how I I think there was um, one that came out just a few years ago. And it was uh, by a woman at uh, Harvard. And she was saying she decided, I mean, she was on the tenure track, but something like clicked with her and she was like, I can't, (laughs) you know, I can't work as hard as everyone else here. And it's okay if I don't get tenure. But I don't think a lot of people go into academia and think like, I, it's okay if I don't get tenure. (laughs) They're like, I have to get tenure. And it drives this like, Because outwardly, that's like a sign of success. Yeah, the problem is we're
1: producing so many PhDs, Mm -hmm. and the federal government has not restored funding for higher ed since 2007, since the Bush administration. So we have more students than ever in our colleges who have all kinds of needs that are not being met, and we're not hiring the PhDs that we're producing. So that is also creating a tremendous amount of strain On everybody. Somebody asked if I wish that my department had a doctoral program, and I said, absolutely not. There would be nowhere in Arkansas for me to send a bunch of people who who are credentialed with PhDs. Nowhere for me to get them a job in this state. But they have transferable skills that are massively valuable to the culture, but the culture is so anti-intellectual right now that intellectuals have a hard time finding their way into the larger conversation, and that is troubling, especially in a democracy. I mean, I just... It's so frustrating because I want to be able to churn out highly educated people in this state, mm-hmm. and yet every policy that impacts economics has nothing to do with a well-educated work- workforce. It's so frustrating to me because no. we should have more per capita masters. I mean, we have it's one of the lowest percentages of people that have some exposure to college. I mean it's a pause like less than forty percent. It's
0: like thirty three percent, yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean it's just it's appalling. You want to have a democracy, you want people to make decisions that 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 benefit us all. Maybe you don't, maybe it's just like, you know, bold ideological <laughs> mm-hmm. power hunger. But I mean I do. I want people to be making smart, well informed decisions based on evidence and things and If you have a grossly undereducated population, you're not going to get that. And that's bad for everybody.
0: But also people who are educated are also fit into narrow confines. For political beliefs, lifestyles, jobs. I know um, there's a lot of conversation about how uh, consultancies take and banks, like a bunch of students, even in humanities... Just a huge percent of the, percentage of them end up in investment banking and consulting, just like a very narrow yeah. Oh, yeah. range of fields, because it would be unsuccessful to go a different route that's unconventional. It's like the easiest job, you know, I to do just know. jump into straight. And that's a sign of success. Uh, it's a sign of monetary success because those jobs are well compensated. It's a sign of uh like success that you found a job right out of college like you didn't waste all that time uh being a great student an exceptional student and getting into the school and that's been your whole lifestyle for 22 fucking years you're achievement driven and then you just decide to take a gap year after college like yeah, yeah totally. no you can't do that because it's like You've got to have that outward sign of success, and it drives people into these careers that aren't actually useful for the larger economy. It's not successful to graduate and go become a teacher. That's not perceived as a successful thing to do. I hadn't
1: heard that. (laughs) That's crazy, you know? It's totally crazy.
0: You're a failure if you want to impart
1: knowledge.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then you become a teacher. I mean, I don't think... That's a failure, but I think a lot of parents who <laughs> like who paid for their child's education would probably uh, think so.
1: Well, I, you know, if if I could just give one piece of advice, it would be to stop listening to what your parents want for you because that <laughs> that's 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 only going to end in tears. You know, parents living vicariously through their kids. I see it all the time. It is so destructive, and the parents pay no attention to the kids' gifts or talents or interests it's only about achievement narratives and i'm just like you need to not be going to get an mba it doesn't even matter if the kid <laughs> has like a particular talent or gift like
0: well i mean there's plenty of kids that have become wonderful musicians and they just like actually don't want to practice as much as they are
1: being forced to but I, I but you can't live vicariously through other people and force them to make decisions you think that they should make. And, you know, I, the other thing, though, is that I see a lot of students who have been, you know, I, they come to me for career advice all the time. I'm like, okay, what do you want to do? And then they tell me, and I'm like, do you really want to do that, or is that just what you've been telling people for the last five years? Because the this thing, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to be when you grow up? This uh, uh, horrific prompt, like, anybody knows. <laughs> I'm just like, people don't generally do that. They have they justify it after the fact and I'm like oh look and then I do it. I did A and then I did B and then I got to the place that I thought I was going to go nobody has a linear story like that. Very few people do and so I'm like is this just what you've been telling people and you feel like you have to follow through with it now? Because you can actually just not do that you need to not get an (laughs) MBA yeah. or in law school I have a lot of students around like you are not this is not necessarily your path and you know, Arkansas is in a lawyer shortage, so it's not like we don't need good lawyers. But I'm like, you don't have to be a lawyer just because you said it when you were 14.
0: And because it's relatively easy, it's a, a well-defined path.
1: After well-defined path, That's being it. an
0: English major.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah, no, that kind of question is infuriating. The, like, one that indicates that you need to have a five-year plan or something like that. I mean, I make fun of it in my stand-up by saying, like, where I want to be in five years is retired. Yeah. Um, (laughs) because, like, if we're being honest, that's, actually, Mm -hmm. where do I want to be? Not working my ass off and being underappreciated. I don't know.
1: (laughs) I know, I know. I know. Or, like, you know, my only goal was to get a PhD, and that's like, okay, I guess I'll get tenure. And I'm like, okay, well, the the rest is gravy. (laughs) I don't feel like I have to tell, I don't feel like I have to have any well-defined goals because the only ones that I have had, and then I was like, okay, I did that, you know, and now I'm like, the rest of it, I just get to do whatever I want. It's nobody's business, but my goal right now is to not work so excruciatingly much, you know, because I have just been grinding it for so long, these Sixty-five hour weeks have just been killing. I've been doing it for twenty years, and I'm I'm burnt out. Well, it's time to lean back. <laughs> Finally, real. <laughs> I know, I know. That's why this podcast is being born now. It's because I have the space to lean back, and the interest in it, and you know, and this part of my life has come to sh- much sharper focus about the ways that I want to create productive dissent around these kinds of structures in my own life and mm-hmm. yeah all i want to do is lean back i don't want to lean in any further who has the emotional energy to lean in further who has the patience who has the time who has the penchant for the violence i just it's just so ridiculous to me to ask people to take on more than yeah. they're already doing it's just it's insulting i think
0: and also leaning in, i mean it's myopic you know you don't get a room to explore and play like we've talked about. When you, like, explore, when you take a gap year, when you decide to become a teacher instead of a uh, consulting intern. or When you bartend <laughs> instead of Teach for America. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's, to me, a great space. But, I mean, I'm still struggling with feeling like maybe I failed in some way. And people, like, just lean in and, like, go through these narrow myopic uh, views or, like, lifestyles, work styles, just, like, to avoid that feeling. Yeah. You know? And part of me feels like, you know, every once in a while I'm like, fuck, I need to get a job (laughs) at Cube or something because I, like, struggle with that feeling. But then you ultimately decide, nope. (laughs) Yeah, but it's so easy to be driven by that need to appear competent and uh, (laughs) well-adjusted and rich and
1: normal. But it's like also just a total inability to deal with uncertainty. Americans on the uncertainty reduction scale score super low in their ability to handle uncertainty. And so it is about the predictability of the narrative, and it is about conformity, and it's about this perverse sense of security. And that's why when people have a midlife crisis, it's like, well, I mean, I thought I was doing stuff that made me feel secure, but I don't feel secure. Well, yeah, because yeah, that doesn't come from external stuff, it turns out. It yeah, turns I mean, out.
0: insecurity does a lot.
1: I mean, it leads to like, people being All violent
0: and controlling and accumulating a bunch of stuff. <laughs> The more stuff I have, the
1: more more in control I am. I agree. I mean, it just, it's the culture is ripe now, I think, for a reappraisal of both these notions of success and failure. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas FAM.